this week on the Backtable podcast. And so we needed something that could um, make care consistent. And we saw that in our FDA study. Um, yeah, we were able, even in some of the best drug centers around the country where we did the study, we were able to not only reduce the time from scan to alert of the specialist by around an hour, but most importantly, we were, we reduced the variation from well over 120 minutes down to seven minutes of variation of when this doctor was alerted. Wow. To me, that's the major issue that in healthcare, the technology can solve, right? When things align, that patient is treated, you know, with the, 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 the standard that we want them to be treated. But on average, that's not the case. There's so much variation in healthcare and AI solves the standard deviation problem. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and of course on backtable.com. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Silicon Valley and co-founder of an early stage device company in the pulmonary space. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. We're very excited to have our special guest this week, Dr. Chris Mancy. Great to have you, Chris. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, of course. Uh, this is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Series, where you will hear stories from physician innovators who are helping to shape the interventional field through health tech. Dr. Mancy is a neurosurgeon and CEO of Viz.ai, a startup in the AI space that is on fire right now. So Viz.ai is using AI, artificial intelligence, to improve patient outcomes in the stroke space reducing time to treatment and improving access to care. In today's show, we're going to hear about Chris's path through neurosurgery and what led him to Stanford Business School and ultimately to start a high-impact AI company. Again, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, starting off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you do? Where are you from? Those types of things. Training background. Uh, absolutely. So you could probably tell from my accent that I'm I'm British. Um, so I, I trained in the UK um, as a neurosurgeon. I was at medical school at Cambridge um, and UCL, followed by uh, residency in Queen's Square and Kings in London. And I was um, lucky enough to be able to take a sabbatical to spend some time um, at Stanford in 2014, uh, where I did the biodesign program um, and an MBA uh, combined. And that really, you know, changed my career a little bit. You know, pr prior to to Stanford, I certainly um, had an entrepreneurial mindset. I started a couple of companies in the medical education space. But being out here and seeing the amazing technology, the amazing entrepreneurs, the amazing uh, companies that are built out here really inspired me to um, take what I was doing to the next level. Um, and in 2016, um, I founded Viz AI, which is a medical AI company focused on improving access to care and improving the speed and efficiency of care, trying to take the average standard of care up towards the very best. So you get the same care no matter which hospital you show up to, uh, no matter what time of day, day of week. 
um, really trying to maximize the effectiveness of the expertise that we have in medicine so that if a patient needs a thrombectomy, for example, um, they will be connected via our system to that the, the right new interventionist to get the, the treatment that they might need. Awesome. It sounds like you have done a lot of stuff since your training. So starting back there, uh, so you finished your neurosurgery training and, and you said you founded a couple of startups previously in the educational space. Uh, can you maybe walk us through that? Uh, what motivated you to want to do that? Were you in your training or were you already in attending by that point? Yeah, it was in my training and, you know, I wanted to, to, to really make learning accessible. This was the early days of e-learning, um, you know, the likes of Coursera, et cetera. And I wanted to develop an educational program for surgeons that was easy to use while dealing with the de demands of a surgical residency. And so the company EduSurge essentially puts online modules um, for what we call the membership um, of the Royal College of Surgeons, um, which is equivalent, I think, to the either the step threes. You take, you take the exam when you're maybe two, three years post-med school. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're looking to specialize, uh, cause the, the system's slightly different out in the, in the UK. And we, we essentially, um, built a bunch of content, um, built a platform for others to put content online and created modules for, um, this particular exam, um, which is a Viva style exam. And yeah, for me, what was interesting about it was it was the first time where I was really, I set something up from scratch, my first entrepreneurial experience and I had to just learn a lot. I had to learn how to empathize with the, with the user and put stuff out there. Um, what, what I now know is, is marketing, right? I had to learn, um, how to put a website together. I had to learn how to build a team. Um, and so that early experience was great. And it really set me up for, um, you know, the next stage of my entrepreneurial journey at, at, at uh, Viz. That's great. And you were, um, so you practiced for five years and was EduSurge still going on? Were you, were you running it or what happened uh, with EduSurge? Yeah, it's still being run uh, by a small team in London. Great. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Uh, it sounds like that was kind of where your entrepreneurial fire was, was started, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. I think just, just you know, I, I speak to a lot of um, clinician entrepreneurs like yourself. And I think all of us have got a very similar story where you just go, hey, I'm going to try something. And you don't really know what you're doing, but you just give it a go. You create something from nothing and you learn along the way and you continue iterating to the works. Yeah, that's exactly what I uh, interviewed previous uh, Rusty Hoffman, who's an IR at Stanford. Uh, he said the same thing. He says, you really just have to get started. Uh, you course correct later, but just getting started is probably the most important step. Correct. I agree with that. That's great. Did you do any endovascular work during your I, practice? I didn't, no. Okay. So tell me, at what point did, in your career did you decide, I'm going to take a sabbatical, you know, I love this entrepreneur stuff, but I, wanna, I want to formalize my training in business. And, you know, what prompted the move to, to Stanford? Obviously, it's one of the best business schools uh, around. Yeah. So, um, I have to admit, I, you know, back then I probably didn't even know what, um, an MBA was, you know, it's very focused on my clinical work, but I started this company and was learning a lot. And a friend of mine who was helping me said, Hey, you seem to like this stuff. You could, should consider, um, doing an MBA and I sort of looked, looked at what it was. I was reading a lot of the, 
um, the, the material coming out of Silicon Valley, um, like some of the um, blogs coming out of the Y Combinator program, mm -hmm. a bunch of the books like the Lean Startup, um, Crossing the Chasm. And, and I sort of realized this stuff did really um, interest me. And so I was lucky enough to be granted a sabbatical and came out to Stanford for two years uh, with the plan to go back. Of course. And um, if Stanford being Stanford, I was in a business school class and was lucky to be taught by um, Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO and chairman of Google at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I pitched the idea for Viz in um, the class's business school, you know, the business um, plan competition. Mm -hmm. And he liked it enough that he ended up um, to seed funding the company. Wow. And you know, I think back then I didn't really understand um, how venture capital works, but I, you know, I thought having a few million dollars to try and make this happen was very exciting. Right. I had to have this um, conversation with my boss back home saying, hey, I might be out here for a bit longer. Yikes. Um, yeah. Can you extend the sabbatical? And they said yes. And that actually ended up turning into me uh, doing this full time and, and leaving clinical practice. Wow. Uh, quite, quite the jump. And I want to get into that uh, in just a little bit. But uh, back to the MBA, because it sounds like you had a fantastic experience there. Uh, Eric Schmidt teaching you and then funding. So what were kind of some of your takeaways from from getting an MBA? And maybe you can walk us through some of uh, any experiences that you had that were maybe transformational. I know there are probably several uh, clinicians out there and, and other groups of people in industry who would consider doing something like an MBA. Yeah, I, I talked to, to, um, to several fellow um, neurosurgeons and neurologists who, who either have done one or doing one. Um, and I think the, the, the first thing about the program is it's two years um, where you have time to, to think along with some really smart people from other disciplines, from business, from consulting, from banking, also from computer science, engineering. Um, and where else do you get to take that two years to try something? Um, and for me, my biggest takeaway was if you can, in your career, give yourself a chance to, and space to do some innovative things, take it, take it, no matter where it is, no matter what the program is. The MBA in particular is helpful because it's designed around, you know, teaching you some of the disciplines of, of business, but particularly at Stanford, it's, it's not just the disciplines of business, it's things like you know, storytelling, communication, mm -hmm. management, you're not just learning about, um, your human resources and like the ins and outs of how, you know, I don't know, Nike set it up but, or, or Nike as you say in the US, in the US set it up, but mm -hmm. you're learning actually about the skills of, um, the, the interpersonal skills of, of inspiring people, of, of leading. Um, and yeah, I think those kind of programs are excellent at, at achieving those things, which is why you see so many great companies coming out of programs like Stanford. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm going to reiterate what you said about taking time and giving yourself the space. Uh, from what I found in the, you know, the short amount of time I was out here doing the Stanford Biodesign Fellowship and then uh, starting our startup, I think I've realized also that if you don't, if you're doing full-time clinical practice, uh, you, your, your brain just ha doesn't have the time to, or the energy to come up with some of these things that you might want to pursue. Uh, I've been surprised as well, how important the time and space is really. Absolutely. Um, the time and space and being around other people who are on the same or similar journeys to you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, because if you're just trying to deal with the next clinic, the next um, operating list, then of course, um, that's going to be your focus. Um, but being around other people like in the biodesign program who are trying to, you know, come up with other clinical needs, going for the refining journey, it gives you the permission to go and do that as well. And also like-minded people to discuss the issues that you're having as you're trying to work out what actually will move the needle and improve clinical outcomes. And we've talked about this in other podcasts as well, about how important it is to be around a group of people who kind of give you energy uh, with what you're working on. The same creative people who are looking to push the boundaries and innovate um, and also who are going to challenge you a little bit, because I'm sure when you were at Stanford, you met people who were incredible and you're like, oh, my gosh, how did they how did they do this? I, I know I did when I was there. Um, and it's 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 always nice to have that mirror kind of turn turn back at you and to say, all right, well, if they can do it, why can't I do it? Uh, and it's very uh, inspiring in a way. I agree. I agree. Uh, it, it gives you the courage to go and try something for sure. Totally. Totally. Uh, any interesting, like what was your favorite class, I guess, uh, uh, in your MBA? What stuck out to you as something that, you know, you'll take with you? So I was really focused on the, the entrepreneurship classes as well as um, anything that I could go and do in the engineering school. Mm -hmm. you know, my, my parents both engineers, father's an engineer, my mother's a computer scientist. Um, and so that was in some ways part of my DNA, but, but I was always drawn to those cross, um, functional cross specialty type programs. Um, so biodesign is certainly one of my favorite classes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there was another, another one by a guy called a professor called Andy Ratcliffe, who's also a very successful uh, venture capitalist at Benchmark, as well as a, I think the founder and, and now chairman of wealth, Wealthfront. So he taught a course uh, based on the book, Crossing the Chasm. And for me, that was uh, very, very impactful because it made you realize that, you know, you want to start um, small, you want to start in a focused manner. Um, you know, don't try and use a new, new technology like artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. try and solve everything at once, try and solve a real problem for the stakeholder who matters the most, which is the patient. Right. And once you're doing that, that like you're going to be able to use that beachhead to expand. Um, and I reckon, you know, if anyone is thinking, any of the clinicians out there thinking, hey, I might start a company, that, that book, Crossing the Chasm, is uh, one of my favorites. And I, I thoroughly recommend it. No, that's a great, uh, definitely needs to be on the reading list. Um, you know, d Dr. Tom Fogarty says the same thing. I mean, you mentioned the patient and he always said that if you keep the patient the center of your innovation process, then, you know, you're, you're going to be successful in one way or another. Yeah. And I, I think that's very important to reiterate. Uh, one other thing that I'd like to ask, and this is something that I think if you haven't gone through a, some type of business or management program, uh, something it's a part of the innovation process that I think can be left out. If you just start hitting the ground, innovating, um, is the market, the market size, how well you evaluate your market to see if there's, uh, you know, if it's a high impact area where you're really going to be able to impact a large number of patients. How important is that? Did you already understand this going in? And, and, and what did you learn about how important market is when you're trying to, uh, you know, get a innovation to commercialization? So I think uh, the answer is different depending on which stage of a business you're at. 
Um, I think when you're at the stage where we're right now, which is the growth stage, the, the two things that really matter are how fast you're growing and what is the overall total market that you're addressing. And, you know, I think if you, you know, when you're, when you're um, raising money from venture capitalists, they're the two things they most care about. In the early days though, you know, mm -hmm. you really don't know exactly what the, um, innovation, the product, the product market fit, the total market size is ultimately going to be partly because markets change and develop. The, the Google team, Larry and Sergey, didn't know what search was going to become when they were first starting Google. They just had a better search algorithm, right? Um, same thing for, if you look at, um, you know, some of the more recent successes like Slack and Stripe, like when they were starting out, people wanted to use what they had, but they didn't know it would become as big as it, as it, as it is today. Mm -hmm. And I often caution entrepreneurs not to be too McKinsey like in their mm -hmm. assessment of markets, mm -hmm. because there's a reason why, um, like some of the smartest people at Stanford business school were, were probably the, you know, McKinsey consultants, but very few of them went on to actually start a company mm -hmm. because they saw all the reasons why things would fail. But we've seen in, you know, in the, in, in 2020, just how much the world changes. And if you built a company that was perfectly attuned to the total market addressable market size of 2019, well, that company is not likely to succeed now in 2021 and beyond because things have changed. Um, and you know, it leads me to caution when you're in the early stages of being too analytical about how large a market is, mm -hmm. um, I, I would just make sure that it's a, it's big enough, um, and that your technology is flexible enough that it can grow into something as the world adapts around you. That's perfect. Yeah. I think that's a really, really great point about how markets, markets are dynamic. Uh, they're, they're never static. And especially as this last year has proven uh, whole new market segments have exploded with telehealth, uh, in general. Um, and so I think I will repeat what you said just now, and that is make sure your market is big enough at the beginning. I think that's really probably, um, that's important to have, uh, I think at the very beginning. So when you're working on something, just make sure that it's high impact. Um, and if you know, it's a true clinical need, kind of like biodesign says that you've vetted that clinical need and there, there are enough patients out there who, who, you know, who need it, um, need it solved. Then I think you're on the right track and you can kind of just put up a ballpark number of your your total market size and then just work on making it the best it possibly can be. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, send to the patient. And if there's enough patients who struggle with that disease, that condition, then it's likely that you have a potential business there if you can solve that problem for them. Perfect. And so would you, would you do it again? Let me ask, would you, ah. would you pursue an MBA again? I know. Yeah. That's a tough question, but. Oh, no, absolutely. I thought you guys would, I, would I start a company again? <laughs> yes to both. It's, it's always, you know, I would definitely pursue an MBA again. Uh, and again, not, you know, people, um, have different perceptions of, of like, the value of what you learn in an MBA. But it's not about what you're being taught. It's about what you learn. It's about the people you're around, the people you, um, you, the friends that you build. 
um, it opens up a new space in your mind for what you can do. So I, I would definitely do it again and I would encourage others if they have a chance to take it. But it's not, that's not just an MBA, right? That could be another graduate program that you take halfway through your career. Um, I think it's a great idea. Awesome. And so you said you, you came up with the idea for Viz at Stanford. Uh, what was the kind of the genesis of, of this? Why, what's the clinical need and what, what, what do you, what was the reason behind it? Did, was there a specific patient uh, or something that prompted you to want to start this? Um, absolutely. So back then, this is, this is in 2015, and I'm in the biodesign course with mm -hmm. uh, an endovascular neurosurgeon, Jeremiah Johnson. Um, and the Mr. Clean data came out showing that thrombectomy was effective and not just effective. It had a very low numbers needed to treat. Um, for a devastating disease that I knew well, like my grandmother had had a large vessel occlusion stroke. Um, and you know, we, all of a sudden we had the therapy to treat a patient that was proven and not just in one trial, but in, in numerous trials in 2015. But I realized that actually, if you look to the statistics, very few patients who had an LVO, large vessel occlusion were, were being treated. It was around the 2%, the 3%. And you know, it wasn't because if a patient showed up to Stanford, it wasn't that they weren't being treated, they, they usually were, were. It was the fact that often if you show up to a, a, a hospital without an interventional um, specialist, without a stroke neurologist, it wasn't being picked up. It wasn't being referred. Maybe it was, but the workflow wasn't appropriate. The ambulance would take too long to show up. There were a huge variety of reasons when you went through the biodesign process, why these patients were A, not being treated um, as often as they should, and B, why in the Stratus registry, which is one of the largest um, source of data we had at the time, um, we saw that the median time to treatment was between three and five hours. Uh, whereas in the best centers, you know, you could get patients if they showed up to the, the, the hub, you, you could get a patient from door to groin in 30 minutes. Um, and in a spoke, you could get door in, door out times of an hour. So why wasn't that happening consistently? Um, and I just thought back to, you know, some experiences I had, um, in, in practice where, uh, you know, when I did a TED talk about one young lady who had a subdural hemorrhage and who died, um, despite the operation going well. Um, and in the mortality morbidity meeting, realizing the reason why she died wasn't anything we did in the operating room. It was the four to five hours it took and the delays it took to get her there. Mm. Um, and you know, you've been through the biodesign program. It, it really encourages you to stop thinking about what, what you might do as the clinician mm -hmm. and focus on the whole clinical need. Because if it's the transporter, that's the problem. If it's the transfer center, that's the problem. That's where you need to focus. And so we realized that, uh, you know, this new technology, deep learning, which had just come out of the labs of uh, Jeff Hinton in Canada and was really all the rage in Stanford at the time, mm -hmm. um, which was able to pick out patterns in data. So it could tell you the difference between a cat and a dog, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we realized that potentially we could use that to pick out patterns in CT scans or in other medical data and use that as a trigger. And at the time, there were a bunch of other AI imaging companies um, who were really focused on you know, improving things for the radiologist, like improving uh, maybe the measurement of something or the detection of something. But ultimately, you know, the radiologist does, does a good job of that for the most part. 
Mm-hmm. The issue is connecting the dots between the ED, the radiologist, the neurologist, mm-hmm. and the interventionalist with all of the amazing healthcare providers um, that, that go in between the stroke coordinator, the stroke nurse, the ambulance driver, the EMT. And there's many, many people. It's incredibly complex. But what if within a minute of the scan, an algorithm would read that scan and alert the um, right neurologist or neurointerventionist so they could go, yep, these images show a patient who I could potentially treat. Let's transfer them over. All of a sudden, you would turn healthcare from a push model with numerous steps and handovers and you know three to five hours of delays to one where decisions could be made within minutes, where you'd have the team that really understands the disease and the time-sensitive nature of the disease driving the workflow, you could potentially shorten time to treatment significantly. And, and that's ultimately what we what we've have proven out. So what I'm hearing, that's that's great. What I'm hearing is it was it's really a workflow problem. Uh, yeah. from your end, it was a workflow problem. And maybe the timing was right to use a technology like AI to help solve this problem. And uh it but again, it was probably the workflow was the hard part for you guys. How do you figure out uh, how to connect these dots in, in a quick way? And then the catalyst would be once the scan is done, then Viz would automatically, does it automatically read the CT scan right when the scan is done? And then it starts this whole kind of domino effect afterwards? Correct. Yeah. So it's, it's reading any of the scans coming off the system. Um, if it's, if it's the, if it's ischemic stroke, it's going to be a CT angiogram. Um, and if it sees a large vessel occlusion, uh, perfusion mismatch, it is going to send an alert to the relevant stroke team. And that's obviously the, the vascular neurologist and the neurointerventionalist, as well as the local emergency room physician and radiologist. And immediately they're, they're connected, it's fire mobile app. They click on the alert, they view the images um, like in a matter of seconds and they can immediately communicate. So you know, typically we will see scan to decision times of around three to five minutes where you've not just got decisions of, hey, I can treat this patient, but you've got communication between that spoke and the hub where they're, they're saying, okay, we're gonna transfer this patient over to, you know, you name the comprehensive stroke center. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's great. And I had a chance to download the training app that you guys offer and, and look at the images and, you know, from a radiologist perspective, the images were great. Um, very high quality. I was curious and it's a very intuitive user interface. I was curious how much time you guys put into, uh, your image quality and user interface experience. A, a lot, a lot. You know, I think, um, you know, we realized early on that an algorithm on its own was not going to be the product. And really this would only work if the radiologist, the neurointerventionist, the neurologist could roll over in bed and, you know, make a determination if this was a patient they needed to act on or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of, you know, unlike a lot of the other AI companies, we kind of eschewed um, technological determinism and instead lent into the complexity of how healthcare is delivered at two in the morning, as well as, you know, two in the afternoon at a major downtown center in Miami versus a rural, rural spoke. I mean, realized that actually the user interface was going to be the key. Mm-hmm. Um, in healthcare, the, and we learned this in biodesign, right? The only way that you can change um, healthcare and workflows 
is if you make it easier for that clinician who's responsible for that patient and wants to do the best for that patient, you can only change their behavior if it's easier to use your product than the alternatives. Mm-hmm. And the alternative- so lowering the activation energy, basically, uh, that it takes because they have to make so many decisions on a minute by minute basis um, that anything, it has to lower that, that, that threshold for them. Uh, yeah, I love the way you put that exactly. Lower the activation energy, absolutely. Okay, and so the, the as you say, the algorithm was not really, that's not the, the focus. You needed it to be a beautiful, almost like a work of art, which is what it looks like when you, when you log in. It looks, you know, clean, like a cleaner than most PAC systems, um, which, was, which was very refreshing. So I am curious, how did you realize that AI was the way to, way to go? I mean, I know it was, the, it was coming out at the time and it, the timing did work. I mean, timing is so important for these things. Yes. But it also takes a lot to be able to say, you know, did you have, first off, did you have any experience with AI? And if you didn't, I know you said your, your mom was in computer science, but if you did not have any experience, that kind of takes a little courage to dive into something and say, hey, this is, this is kind of the tool I'm going to use to solve this clinical need. Yeah. So I think like we were looking at the, the system and we realized that you needed to focus on the workflow and the user experience, but you also needed a, a trigger. You need to try and replicate having a neuroradiologist in every CT scanner so that the neuroradiologist could, could, you know, trigger that workflow. Um, because for every, you know, thousand scans that Viz processes, there's maybe, you know, 20 or so that actually will have a large vessel occlusion. And so there's, there's 890 that it's, it's not 980, sorry, <laughs> it is not a lot, <laughs> anything with. Um, but we realized that the, the power of deep learning was to, to automate that process. You know, they wouldn't get the algorithm doesn't need to, and wasn't designed to get to the level of a neuroradiologist. The point is these things, once you start looking at, you know, CTAs are, are, are relatively easy to pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't look at the scans, if you're an emergency room physician, um, it's, they're hard to pick up, particularly the more distal occlusions. And so we needed something that could um, make care consistent. And we saw that in our FDA study. Um, you know, we were able, even in some of the best drug centers around the country where we did the study, we were able to not only reduce the time from scan to alert of the specialist by around an hour, but most importantly, we, were, we reduced the variation from well over 120 minutes down to seven minutes of variation of when this doctor was alerted. Well, wow. to me, that's the major issue that te- in healthcare, the technology can solve, right? When things align, that patient is treated, you know, with the, 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 the standard that we want them to be treated, but on average, that's not the case. There's so much variation in healthcare and AI solves the standard deviation problem. Mm, no, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Um, you, what I think importantly, you found it sounds like it was a convergence of both the timing was right for AI to be used as a tool. The clinical need w- was there, and that's obviously, I'd say, the, the, the foundation is the clinical need. But also, it, you know, it sounds like uh, you guys just latched onto AI and said, we want you to solve this very focused problem, uh, rather than, as you mentioned earlier, solving 
10 different things, you're not going to read the whole CT scan and generate a report for the physician, but you are going to be very good at finding a large, ves large vessel occlusion. And, you know, you mentioned that before, but how important do you think that is to, especially if you're dealing with something like AI, to focus in on something uh, so that it becomes very good at one particular thing, um, but also to make sure that that, that clinical need is, is uh, or that solution leads to an outcome change. Yeah, I, I think it's really the focus on the outcome change. So mm -hmm. the, the our, our product wouldn't work without the algorithm alerting the the, the doctors, right? It, it it has a big difference um, because it's alerting the specialist across a hospital network um, and mm -hmm. waiting for that the process to happen as it does without viz, like to happen in series, just takes too long. So the algorithm is important, but really it's about like, how do you, how are you going to improve the patient outcome? Well, you can improve the patient outcome if from the moment they have the stroke to when they get the clot removed from their brain, that time is reduced. Mm -hmm. And you could do that in many ways, right? You could focus on educational campaigns to make sure people call 911 earlier. And that's absolutely essential. You can focus on you know, better abilities to read the scans, better workflow. So when the patient comes in through the door of the ER, they're immediately taken for both a CT and a CTA. And we do all these things. If you look at, if you work with Viz, what's interesting, and a lot of our customers will comment, is it's not just the software, it's the team that comes with it. We have a customer success team that essentially is able to share best practices from every center that we work with so that a, a hospital in Mississippi can benefit from a hospital in, in New York and what they've done and vice versa. And that focus on the solution is really, really important. Now, AI is, is advancing, you know, every year, every, almost every week, right? You're seeing mm. new techniques, new tools that are coming out from the major technology companies like, like Google, who, who we work closely with. Um, and I think it probably is logical that over time, your most images, most, whether they're, they're, they're um, radiological images or pathological images, most of them will probably be examined at some point by an algorithm, which will do one of three things. It will help with disease detection, disease measurement, or prediction of what might happen to that disease. But I think ultimately, unless they're part of a whole solution focused on that patient outcome, they're not going to make a difference and therefore not be adopted. Yeah, you, you have to have the outcome change before there's going to be the impact and be adopted. If you have something that just is better at finding something, as you mentioned earlier, well, a radiologist is going to do that at some point. Maybe Correct. you saved 12 seconds, but that doesn't move the needle in terms of outcomes. Exactly. So backing up just a touch, when you, uh, well, you mentioned a second ago, you're working with Google. Uh, how are you guys working with Google? Well, so they're investors in Viz, right? They did our Series A along with Kleiner Perkins. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a, a few different bits and pieces of, you know, um, technology that we're, we're collaborating on with them. All right. Okay. Go into that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> R&D, I, yeah. I understand. Um, so when you were, so you came up with the idea, you came up with the solution, the clinical need was strong. What did you do early on before your series A? I mean, did you have to raise seed funding, pre-seed funding? Did you, how did you prototype feasibility? I think this kind of gets to the core of what we mentioned earlier about just getting started and, ju and just, just moving the ball down the field a little bit. Um, so I am curious because that's that, that moment where it's easy to say, ah, it's, it's not worth it. This is a mountain of work we've got to climb. 
Right. And it is a mountain. It's a mountain where every time you get to a peak, there's another peak that you discover ahead of you. Um, and that's the, 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 the joy and the curse of entrepreneurship, I think. Um, yeah. So back then, you know, we really we were focused on learning, so talking to the market, talking to a lot of clinicians. Um, we were building the technology, the mobile viewer, um, the, the we have a HIPAA compliant messaging service, which, which now is comparable, right, to WhatsApp, but, you know, back then was, was, was relatively basic. Mm-hmm. Um, we were getting guidance from some of the top, uh, stroke clinicians around the country, the people who were, who were the PIs of those trials, because we wanted to try and codify what they did. In centers like, um, you know, Grady, uh, mm-hmm. in the, in the South. Yeah, Chattanooga. Yeah. Yeah. So those places where the, in the strobo, they're treating more strokes than anyone else. And so they've had to get really, really good at doing it. And so we wanted to try and codify that workflow. So to get started, you know, you've, you've got the AI component, which is you're getting a hold of, of a data set through research collaborations, annotating the data set building the models, iterating on the models, talking to the FDA to try and understand and negotiate on what the clinical trial will be, and really just seeking um, advice from the market and getting product market fit. Because you can't, you know, you can't um, ever develop something that's going to work um, in a lab, right? In, 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 a, in a vacuum. A vacuum, yeah. You have, to, you have to be out there and understanding what the real world's like, particularly the, the real world of healthcare. And so we were just doing a lot of that. And were you building a team at the time as well, or was it just the kind of the core group and you were trying to develop that early prototyping, early feasibility data, so to speak? Yeah, well, we, we were lucky again, being, you know, being associated with Stanford, we were able to bring in some super talent from the uh, engineering school. And my co-founder, David Golan, was a postdoc there and he was able to bring in some of his, his colleagues. Um, I was able to bring in some superstars from the business school and a small team of you know, four or five people were just out there learning. We were part of a, an incubator um, that had other like-minded companies um, doing similar things. Actually, most companies, most companies, all of the companies were not in healthcare. They were all sort of broad technology companies. Mm-hmm. But we were going through that journey together. Which incubator, if you don't mind? Uh, it was the Pear Incubator. Okay. Um, and uh, so... Were you going off of the funding that Eric Schmidt had provided? Was that kind of your seed capital at that point? Or did he come in at the Series A? He, he provided the seed capital. Um, through, got it. He's got a fund called Innovation Endeavors, and um, mm-hmm. they, they did our seed round. Okay, great. So uh, your funding has gone up a little bit since then. Uh, you recently raised $71 million. That was a Series C, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, that's a fantastic number for a lot of people. So tell me, what what are you looking to achieve with this seventy one million? I assume this is your your growth phase. You're looking to uh, to really grow with this. Absolutely. So yeah. So you know, we've been successful in getting our ischemic stroke product in to uh, many hospitals. It's in over over it's, it's approaching seven hundred hospitals now. I think about six hundred and eighty the last count. And uh, but what we found is that the combination of you know, mobile image viewing with HIPAA compliant secure uh, communication, the on-call schedule, and then algorithms that trigger workflows, so that if this, you know, if um, the CTA shows a large vessel occlusion, then that, then this workflow should happen. That's very powerful for multiple disease states. 
Um, and we've had a lot of other um, specialists, particularly interventional radiology, interventional cardiology, vascular surgery, and um, peripheral vascular and you know, endovascular um, surgeons. They've started using VIRS more broadly than stroke for their own workflow needs. And so in P, it's being used to view, view the CTPE, the RVLV ratio, and make decisions on what to do next with the patient. It's being used to arrange transfer from spoken hub. And what we've essentially built is this new form of software in healthcare, an intelligent care coordination platform, which in contrast to like the EHRs out there, which really you can think of as the system of record, they're really the system of action. They're lightweight mobile-based tools for the most part that allow things to happen faster and more efficiently, but most importantly, more consistently. Mm -hmm. um, and we see, you know, great like clinical outcomes in stroke, but we also see great financial outcomes. We see reduced leakage because more patients are followed up sooner. Mm -hmm. um, we see better satisfaction from the clinical team because A, it's easier to use and they're collaborative. So it feels like kind of this one, tree, one team, one dream type mindset. Mm -hmm. And where you know that that sort of um, that pull from the market has really inspired us to expand pretty broadly. So what you'll see for us in, for, in from us in 2021, 2022 is uh, a, a big expansion into other disease states that can also benefit from this intelligent care coordination platform. Uh, that's fantastic. So you're starting the expansion phase. Uh, you know, you mentioned just kind of wrapping up a little bit here. You, for my takeaways here are your clinical need was strong because you could change outcomes. I think that's probably the number one takeaway I would have uh, from the beginning if you're going to work on a project like this is you must affect outcomes and it must be clear that you are affecting outcomes. Um, you also seem to focus in on kind of a specific area. Uh, which was important. But now, once you've mastered that and shown and kind of worked out probably the, the kinks that I'm sure come with the system over over a couple of years, optimizing and iterating, you've, you, you've kind of leaned uh, the system out. You've made it a very lean, efficient workflow, intelligent workflow system. Now you're ready to build on that momentum and spread out into other practice areas. Does that sound reasonable as a summary? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of, we want to work with a lot of your listeners because we need to understand where this technology can really impact patient care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of, um, we work with a lot of interventional radiologists, you know, this guy, Keith Sterling, Richard Saxon, so Dan, I think he was part of this podcast. A lot of these people are helping us say, you know, say, hey, take this technology and put it here because these other patients can benefit. And that's really what our, our next journey is about. That's awesome. So Chris Mancy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, your path, and now your passion. Um, let me ask one more question before we go though. Do you think you will go back to clinical practice at any point? Uh, I wish. I always, I always said I wish I could do both. I, I've been out since 2014, so I don't think that's gonna happen, unfortunately. Um, but who knows? Again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, that was a great overview and, and, and what an excellent story. So thank you for sharing it with us. Brian, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.